Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 391st edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting in this our ninth year across the world from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, the world's center of entertainment and where entertainment meets technology. For those of you who are not familiar with Los Angeles, um, Silicon Beach, which is the Los Angeles version of Silicon Valley, is growing at an incredible rate. If you know LA from Santa Monica all the way to Venice Beach, it's just wall-to-wall startups and accelerators um, and VCs. It is incredible. The growth is just amazing. So I hope you've all had a great Easter and Passover. I spent the weekend getting ready for my 15 hours on the plane tonight for a very quick trip to Australia, which is leaving in a couple of hours after this show finishes but I shall be back in a week or so. A heart was grown on a 3D printer during the week, and this advancement could change medicine forever. The entire living heart was successfully engineered, replete with cells, blood vessels, ventricles, and chambers. It's made from human cells and patient-specific biological materials. So it's really the person's heart. And in the process, these materials serve as the bio-inks, which are substances made of sugars and proteins, and they use those for the 3D printing of the complex tissue modules. People have managed to 3D print the structure of a heart in the past, but not with cells or blood vessels actually made from the person's DNA. Now, these results demonstrate the potential of this approach for engineering personalised tissue and organ replacement. In the future, it's rather incredible when you think about it. They take your DNA and print a heart that actually can work. Now, to create the 3D printed heart, fatty tissue is taken from the patients, and this is separated into cellular and acellular materials, and then the cells were reprogrammed to become pluripotent stem cells. Now, the extracellular matrix, which is a three-dimensional network of extracellular macromolecules, such as collagen and glycoproteins, were processed into a processed into a personalized hydrogel that serves as the printing ink. So once they're mixed with a the hydrogel, they were then separated into cardiac and endothelial cells to create patient-specific cardiac patches along with a person's own blood vessels. This is crucial to eliminating the risk of Rejection. So you're not going to be rejected. You know, one of the biggest problems with heart transplants and any organ transplant is the body rejecting 
the heart or the liver or whatever it is. But when you actually make the replacement heart or whatever from the person's own DNA, there will be no rejection. So it increases the likelihood of success many fold. So the biomaterial possesses the same biochemical, mechanical and topographical properties of the patient's own tissue. It is really quite amazing. Now, although the heart was made with human cells and patient-specific biological materials, it's still too small to be used for an organ transplant at the moment. But it's only, it's only about the size of a rabbit's heart. However, it can be enlarged. They're working on that now as larger human hearts require exactly the same technology. Now, the study was inspired by the prevalence of heart disease in Israel. They were Israeli and American doctors, but um, there's a prevalence of heart disease in Israel and the US, according to data compiled by the CDC. And heart disease is the leading cause of death for both men and women. And it accounts for the deaths of more than 600,000 people every year. So now we hope that we can teach the heart to behave like real hearts, including tasks such as pumping blood and having the valves work together. The cells need to form a pumping ability. They can currently contract, but they haven't been able to get it to pump. So as soon as they get that to work together, we will have living, pumping hearts, which is really quite extraordinary. So it's hoped that within 10 years, and hopefully much less, there will be organ printers in the finest hospitals around the world, and these procedures will be conducted pretty routinely. Now, that is amazing, isn't it, when you think about it. Now, while we're at it, about six or eight months ago, I told you that you should buy a stock and uh, it was it was a sensational stock called CRISPR C R I S P R now the first um, trial launch in America was this is where they um, edit your DNA take out all the ba- bad bits throw them away and put in good bits well the first trial was done is, is being done now and uh, An article that I read about half an hour ago says that they're expecting an increase in revenue of something like 20,000%, 28,000% imminently. So if you're listening to this and you're a share person, get CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, CRISPR Therapeutics. It is an absolute winner. Now, if you had bought it when I told you six months ago, you would have been miles more in front. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 or 1.8 million daily subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds to read, and every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars and blockchain. 
the one thing you can trust for the latest up-to-date business information is the Bob Pritchard newsletter. We spend an enormous amount of time putting it together, getting the latest information for you. I actually write it myself, and uh, it takes me to write the five half the five thirty-second read news uh, newsletters. Takes me around about nearly three days. So I hope you read it because it's a bloody lot of work to put it together. Now, with the rise of the Me Too and the Times Up movements, structural changes in Hollywood are underfoot as the industry shifts from the old problematic phrase, that's just how things are and casting couches and all that stuff, to facing issues of consent, harassment and sexual assault. And Hollywood's tackling those things head on. I think they really got hurt by uh, some of the revelations, recent revelations, and so they're really working on it. Now, these changes have now found their way onto sets, and these sets are now increasingly staffed with what they call intimacy coordinators. Now, they're movement coaches who help choreograph intimate scenes with a focus on the actor's safety. And there's a hell of a lot of intimate scenes in movies, as I'm sure you'll agree. Now, I wonder what experience you need to become an intimacy coordinator. It sounds like a pretty cool job. Now, film and television industries where actors' hireability is based on their willingness to do whatever it takes, that's just how the industry is. You know, if you don't take the gig, there are thousands of people behind you who will, and that's just the way it is. So you don't want to be able to, you don't want to be rejecting parts. So in the past, you took on nude scenes or love scenes or whatever, knowing you were possibly going to be harassed and mistreated and mishandled. You simply had to cop it. But HBO declared in October that it would require intimacy coordinators for all shows containing intimate scenes. So coordinators can be found on sets for Netflix's Sex Education, Amazon's Electric Dreams, and Showtime employs them on a case-by-case basis, including on The Affair. Now, much of the current discussion around intimacy coordinators begins with The Deuce, a show that doesn't back down from the reality of its subject matter, prostitution and porn in the 1970s in New York City. So... Intimacy coordinators handle both the physical and the emotional aspects of the sex role. One role intimacy coordinators play is helping choreograph scenes with the actor's boundaries at the forefront. That can mean anything, such as monitoring actors' hand placements, ensuring that they have certain types of genital barriers and guaranteeing that no one's pressured into nudity that wasn't previously agreed on. So they also sit down and speak with actors and crew members and directors to ensure that no one is emotionally hurt by a scene. For example, if somebody's had a past trauma related to sexual assault, an intimacy coordinator will talk through the scene to make sure it doesn't trigger an issue. Many intimacy coordinators began as movement or combat choreographers. So if there are issues with sex scenes, particularly those containing sexual violence or even a a kiss, a fondle or a grope, 
who better to do so than a person already working with the motions of the actor's bodies? So, you know, when there's a child on set, it makes sense because you think about it, when there's a child on set, a chaperone's required. If there's an animal, the animal must have a handler. If there's any firearms on a set, an armourer is employed. He's a specialist in firearms. And when there's a stunt of any kind, even if it's a small stunt, even if it's just crossing a street while a car's driving, they have a stunt coordinator. Yet with sexuality, there's been at the most what they call a closed set, which means only the necessary crew members are supposed to be on the set. But that's pretty subjective and often isn't strictly paid attention to. So it was decided that she'll be an ambassador of sorts for sex and nude scenes, someone to ensure everything runs smoothly and gives a voice to the actors. That makes perfect sense and it's obviously not before time. So if you've been sitting there worrying about your favourite actress or actor and being embarrassed or whatever, don't worry. You've got... um, (laughs) They're being well looked after with... Intimacy coordinators. Now, the interview guest today is Jerry Nylans. She's the founder and president of Trade Press Services, a marketing communications and media relations firm. We had a good chat earlier in the week. She's worked with more than 500 clients from startups to Fortune 500 companies. And she has some great advice for both startups and established companies. She's been around, she's really been around the block and really knows the stuff. So if you listen to this, you'll get some really good tips. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with Jerry in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. For over the past eight years, we've given you an insight into the lives of around about 400 or 420 of the world's most successful and interesting business people. We've talked about the services they provide, the challenges they may have faced, how they might have overcome those challenges, what it is that makes them successful, and underneath it all, I guess we try to find out what it is that makes them tick personally. 
Now, there are several ingredients to a successful business. A good product is one. A great business model and strategy is another. An excellent team and, of course, funding. And they're the ones that first come to mind. But another important element that doesn't immediately come to mind to many people is marketplace visibility. Now, Jerry Nylans is the founder and president of Trade Press Services, which is a marketing communications and media relations firm. I guess you'd call them a PR firm, but we'll find out in a minute. When I when I was thinking about that, I thought, mm, I wonder if PR and marketing communications and media relations are the same, and I wasn't quite sure. Now, with more than 40 years' experience as a sales and marketing professional, an entrepreneur, a consultant, an author, an educator, Jerry's mission is to help companies and individuals accelerate business growth by increasing their visibility in the marketplace, i.e. the more people who know about you, the more people who've got a good feeling about you, the more people that respect who you are and what you are, the faster you'll grow, you'll develop a competitive edge, you'll communicate more effectively with customers and prospects, and you'll gain recognition as experts in your field. And that's really important. If you're seen as an expert, then it does wonders to attracting business. Now, Jerry's worked with more than 500 clients from startups to Fortune 500s. And since 1995, she set the vision for trade press services and uses her wealth of experience. And she's done a whole shed load of things um, to develop innovative and impactful marketing solutions for clients. She's a frequent blogger and has had more than 80 articles published in magazines and other outlets such as CEO Magazine, Publishing Executive, Richtopia and Leadership Excellence. Jerry's been recognised as a top marketing communication professional by ABC, CBS, NBC and Fox. And that's just about the gamut. Now, that girl really knows her stuff, delivering proactive and practical marketing plans that have increased sales and profits for clients. Hi, Jerry. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. It's great to speak with you. Hi, Bob. Thank you for having me. So it's fantastic to have you on the program. You're being heard right around the world. Now, you've been an entrepreneur for a long time. I hate people. I hate it when people say that to me. You've been in this business for such a long time. Well, screw you. I might, I might, I'm really only 35. Um, <laughs> you've been an entrepreneur for a long time. So what made you decide to become a specialist in marketing communications? Well, I decided at a very early age that I wasn't going to be happy in a traditional bureaucratic environment where standard operating procedures were the foundation of the business. I I needed more. I'm a big picture person. I still have the ability to be detail oriented too, but I'm more visionary and I wanted control over my life and my success and I knew I wasn't going to get it uh, loading IBM data processing machines with tape for their (laughs) telephone uh, billing processes. Yeah. Just didn't do it for me. Yep, I understand that. So, is there a difference between a PR company and marketing communications and media relations? Or are they. I, I think that there is. Um, 
We we do perform some traditional PR functions. Um, we combine uh, PR or media outreach with marketing uh, and our writing services. So we we really cover the gamut. Okay. So what what are the most common services that that clients? If, first of all, what sort of clients are your usual clients? I mean, are they big companies, small companies? Are they service companies? Are they what sort of companies are they? You know, through the years, it's changed, but they're generally smaller to medium-sized companies that don't have full-time marketing staff on board. Right. So um, they can't be, you know, a solo practitioner consulting firm that doesn't have a budget for marketing, although we have worked with those too. But companies probably uh, in the range of uh, 10 to 100 employees and maybe uh, 5 to 30 million in annual revenue. Right. So they're, they're really tend to be smaller because those are the types of companies that really could use our services and we can really help them. Right. So what sort of marketing services do you provide? There are three services that we offer. Uh, One is writing. So we develop content for bylined articles, white papers, case studies, books, blogs, press releases, newsletters, website copy, any type of written word that keeps a company connected to its target audience. Uh, The second service we offer, which is a little more traditional PR, we call media outreach. And in this area, we generate editorial coverage for clients uh, and speaking engagements. We conduct social media coordination. In 24 years in business, we've written for more than 800 publications. And they range. You asked earlier about our target industries and the clients we've served. They're all B2B, but they range from technology to food manufacturing to consultants, engineers, architects, um, in the education field, it's really the gamut. So anybody that has products or services that can be sold B2B, that's where our sweet spot is. So what's the, what's the difference? Well, and the third service oh, right, yeah, sorry. Is, is general marketing support, and that is really what separates us from most PR firms and ad agencies and creative services companies. General marketing support means that we can help any company write a marketing plan, review a marketing plan, evaluate a marketing plan, or implement a marketing plan, or we can step in and do project work like market research, trade show research, prospect list development, competition review, any type of project that has a start and a stop date And we do that for companies whose internal resources are on overload with the competing priorities and uh, the fast pace of business change. There are lots of companies uh, where marketing initiatives are falling through the cracks. We help out. Is it easier or harder um, as a marketing communicator B2B or B2C? 
Our focus has always been B2B because it's a more defined marketplace. Uh, I think that B2C requires um, a much larger budget. It it requires um, a heavy investment. Uh, it you don't have the types of controls when you're attracting, you're trying to attract consumers as when you're trying to get business from people who have a specific business challenge or a need. So I, I really focus on the B2B area. So B2C is fickle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they go after the, the next greatest fad. Uh, yeah. so, so you never know what they're going to respond to. Yeah, and, and your competition changes much more quickly too, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. so, so is it important for all businesses to engage a marketing communications firm or certain types of businesses? Or if, if you're in business and you're B2B, you should have a, um, a firm representing you. Well, I don't know that you need a firm to represent you, but one of the biggest mistakes we see in companies is they operate without a marketing plan. And I think without a marketing plan, you don't have a cohesive team. You don't know when you're successful and when you're not. Um, People don't know where you're trying to go, and they can't help you to get there without a plan. And yeah. things tend to fall through the cracks. You go over budget, and there's all kinds of disasters. So we think that every company needs a marketing plan in order to to function. It doesn't have to be too long. Um, it has to be practical. It has to be funded. You have to have an assignment of responsibilities. Um, you have to... Uh, have some way of monitoring it so you can determine, you know, when you're being successful, when you're not, and what adjustments have to be made. Sure. Um, yeah, I always say to people that um, so many people go into business without a business plan or a marketing plan, and I say, you know, would you build a house without a really good set of plans? No, of course I wouldn't. Well, you know, if you did, what would happen? Well, your house would probably fall down. Well, business is the same. If you don't have a good plan and a good strategy to implement that plan, (laughs) your business is going to fall down. It's really that simple. I I think that's so true. And, And for companies that don't have a plan, we try and move them one step forward by asking them to think about their target markets in terms of three aspects. One is frequency of contact. So how many times per year do you want to communicate with your prospects and customers? Right. And then secondly, what are the messages that you need to develop? You know, what problems do you solve for your customers and what what are their pain points? What's of interest to them? And then the third aspect of the strategy is the marketing channels. So what methods are you going to use to communicate? And if you develop a matrix like this, even without a marketing plan, at least it's the first step because if you say you want to communicate 12 times a year, once a month, which isn't a lot, 
and you see that it's now April and you put out one press release, well, one press release is not a campaign. Right. So, uh, you know, that that frequency is really a key point in in coming up with a strategy. And then the messaging, you know, finding out exactly what the marketplace needs and delivering on those needs. So are you really using the right marketing messages as you approach prospects and customers? So are they relevant? Are they timely? Uh, are they innovative? Are they compelling? And then the third, as I said, you know, do you want to use you know, publication and articles in magazines, advertising, uh, trade shows, social media, uh, email campaigns. Yeah. So all of these things are are important uh, in terms of developing a marketing strategy. It's also it's, it's also often that um, a client may have a, a company may have half a dozen clients, and the message that needs to go to each of them may be quite different. Yes, yes, that's true. So you've got to think through um, the relationship or how to develop the relationship with, with different clients with different needs and and uh, you need to contact them in different ways and different mm-hmm. frequencies and so there's, there's a lot to that. That's true. Do you remember um, Harvey McKay's book, um, how how to swim with the sharks and oh, yeah. eating the lever, something like that. Yeah, I do. A long in, time ago. Yeah, long time ago. But in that book, um, he talked about what every salesperson needed to know about their customers. And he had this long, long list of, of items that ranged from, you know, how people want to be communicated with, to birthdays, to family information, to, I mean, it was just a lot of detail, but it really um, built the foundation for developing a relationship because it showed your interest in other people. Yeah, that's something that really seems to have gone by the wayside. I, I know that 20 years ago, or maybe more, <clears throat> we used to always know a client's birthday we used to know, used to know their anniversary dates or what anything that was important their kids names and if it was their kids birthday the kid was sick you'd send them a little toy and a card and we used to do that for every client i have not done that this is a terrible thing to say but i have not done that for a client for a long time and i guess that's just the pace of where business is today or maybe we're much more cynical and you get a gift like that these days you're saying you know they're sucking up to me or something well you know I, I still do some of that you know I'm, I'm not as good as I used to be um, but when I was really young I was fortunate enough to have a mentor who taught me about how to work with clients in fact, mm. he had 59 client guidelines that he shared with me when I came into his marketing consulting practice. That was before the internet. Um, but he he talked about the importance of listening and the importance of practicing respect, consideration, and having integrity, and being proactive. And uh, I think his favorite was 
uh, follow up and follow through. When somebody asks you to do something, you tell them when you're going to finish it by. It doesn't mean you have to do it that moment. Mm. You say, you know, great idea. I'll be happy to do that for you. I'll have it finished by next Tuesday. Right. Whatever it is. Right. And, and then you deliver on time. So that, you know, it's communicate, communicate, communicate. That shows respect too, doesn't it? It, it, it does. And uh, I think that, that a 24-hour rule he used to have when somebody calls you, you return calls within 24 hours, period. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking that that, um, you know, introducing an old style. I, I remember I've done, I've done a couple of thousand speeches and it, when I'd get a speech – I would always send a, a basket, you know, a mm-hmm. food basket or something to mm-hmm. um, to the booker. Now, mm-hmm. I, I've sort of got out of the habit of doing that. I was just sitting here thinking. You sort of tweaked my memory. And uh, we used to do that religiously and oh, all of a sudden absolutely. I got out of the habit of doing it for some reason. I think probably the world's moving too fast and you don't have the time to sit back and focus maybe like you used to. I'm not sure. Well, I think there's some of that, but in certain industries, that's seen as a bribe mm, yeah. and, and not, you know, a appreciation or recognition. Mm. You know, and that's, that's a whole other topic about uh, what makes uh, entrepreneurs successful in terms of their leadership and their collaboration um, and their transparency and wanting to work with with others, you want to give them the recognition and attention and appreciation they deserve. Sometimes that's more important than a raise or whatever compensation package you offer. Mm. Is just having that open door policy and acknowledging people. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, um, so you've got over forty years' experience, and uh, you're a bit like me. People hire us, um, usually because of my credentials. So I'm hands-on with every project we, we take on. And I only ever take on three projects at a time. Um, now, I've had a lot of people say to me over the years that the problem with PR companies and a lot of consultants is that unless you're a big paying client, this also applies to advertising agencies, probably worse, you get some junior in the back office walk, working on your project in with your firm, how hands-on are you? And if I'm a, you know, relatively small fish client, it, it doesn't matter uh, about the size of the client. I'm hands-on with every client we work with. So Good. I don't have a client services director. I am the client services director. That's good. So right. I know about every project. Uh, I'm. I monitor the status of every project. If something isn't going according to Hoyle, I I know about it, I address it, I deal with it. And even if a client wants something that we don't provide, you know, my goal is to say yes. Right. And if they ask for something uh, and I I can point them in in the right direction or give them a referral uh, or even go outside of our you know, standard services just to 
solve the problem they have. I do that. I had a client last week who called me on a Friday, and they had a white paper that they had written internally, and they said it had to be finished on Monday and asked me to edit it. I don't know a lot of CEOs that would work on Saturday and Sunday to do that for a client, but I do. Yeah. Okay, good. So if I hire your firm, um, what are the criteria by which you judge whether or not the campaign is successful? Well, that's an interesting question because through the years, you know, we've struggled with answering that question in terms of of revenue generated or number of leads that have come in as a result of our campaigns. We've decided that, you know, that's just not feasible. We don't have those kinds of controls. But for me, what's defined success is if a client says to me, I want three articles published this year. Right. And we've accomplished that goal, then I say we have a 100% success rate. Um, So we have a business model with two guarantees. And one of them is if we are not successful in getting you published in the magazines you target, we'll refund your investment. Right. In 24 years in business, we've never had to refund any money. We have a 100% success rate. So I'm very proud of that. Yeah, so you should should be. Thank you. The other aspect of our business model, and I have never seen this put in writing before, is we say to clients, if you do one project a year with us, we will never raise our fees to you as long as I own the company. Can you imagine working (laughs) with a company that says they will not raise their fees? I mean, you look at Verizon and AT&T and, you know, all these companies uh, where you may have been a valued customer or maybe not a valued customer for years and years and years, and they keep raising your rates without giving you any more services. I just, I don't believe in that business model. So I think that the idea of having a client who can do their marketing plan and marketing budgeting every year knowing they're never going to get a dreaded call announcing a fee increase from our company is a tremendous benefit. How long can you keep doing that for? Because I would imagine that if if I got a quote in 1995 and I got a quote today, they would be quite different. (laughs) Well, yes, and, and certainly they would. But I think we're able to do that because of the type of business that we have. You know, we're not... Um, hiring outside agencies or not buying products or services where we pass on some expense to clients. You know, they're paying for what's between our ears, you know, our our brains, our thought process, our capabilities, and our proven track record. So there there are customers who, who we've been working with for 10 years that haven't had a fee increase. You know? So I, I love it. I think that's fantastic. What what if what if a, a a client comes in and says, "I want to achieve ABC," and you create something that you believe will achieve that, and they say, "I don't like it. I want to do something different." How do you handle that? 
who's right, you or the customer? I don't think it's a matter of being right. I think it's a mat a matter of of continuing education and communication and coming to a point where everybody is happy with the go forward decisions. Mm. You know, is it possible a hundred percent of the time? Probably not. You know, if a client came to me and said, um, I want to be published in in uh, the Wall Street Journal or Fortune or Forbes or one of the national business yep. press outlets that don't use contributed articles. Mm. Uh, I would tell them, you know, that's not something that we can arrange. Yeah. So if they have an unrealistic expectation, then, you know, it's my job to to let them know and to clarify it. Yeah. Throughout my career, I have met an awful lot of what I regard as pretty stupid clients. (laughs) 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 So you're obviously nicer than me. (laughs) Well, you know, I've learned to smile a lot and and to laugh and uh, that's okay. What about when you know you're right and the customer complains? the customer's expectations are ridiculous. Does that happen to you? It certainly happens to me. I, I haven't had a lot of that, and I think part of it is because we do a good job up front mm. explaining what we do, how we do it, and the benefits the client will receive. And then we can say to the client, you know, here's what we said we're going to do, and here's what we did, and... You know, if that's not something that is meaningful or important to you, you know, I I certainly apologize and I would want to do whatever we can to fix it. Um, I'll go the extra step of the mile, even if it costs me some money, because our our goal is to be of service. You've got you've got a great attitude. Thank you. So, how has the PR business? PR, there I go. How has the marketing, um, communication, and media business changed over the past 10 years? Um, I think uh, it's a great question. I, I think uh, the way people communicate, the number of channels available to them, um, 24 by 7, you know, with people working in different parts of the country, different parts of the world. So the the idea of collabor- collaborating across time zones, uh, that's been a change. You know, workforce flexibility, uh, the number of mergers and acquisitions, uh, the advances in technology. You know, the, those are all ways that, that businesses have changed. I also think the length of the decision-making process has increased. Uh, I don't think that's good in business, but uh, I think it's a fact of life. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's interesting because I would have thought that most companies have learned to be more um, flexible and, and more reactive to client needs than they ever were before. I think that's true, but getting them to make a decision to begin with. Yeah. I, I don't know if, if the people in in managerial roles 
are not risk takers or if they're uh, afraid of making a mistake. Um, I have a client who says to me, there's no such thing as failure. One door closes, another door opens. So if companies and leaders uh, were a little bit more tolerant in terms of encouraging their people to, quote, fail or to make mistakes and learn from them. Absolutely. I, I think that would be a, a, a good way f- to help individuals evolve and develop. I, I couldn't agree more. And today there's a hell of a lot of influence, emphasis placed on social media and influences, particularly on the B2C market. But mm-hmm. how much influence do social media and influences have on the B2B market? Well, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. I don't really like social media. I, I am not a big fan. I understand it's necessary, especially in the B2C world. I'm not convinced that it has all of the merit that some people attribute to it in the B2B world. I think there are a lot of companies spending a lot of their resources, time, money, and personnel in that. I'm not sure that the payoff is there. And and maybe it's something you have to do just to be visible in the marketplace, but in terms of actual results, I'm not convinced that it's the be-all and the end-all. Hmm. So, of business marketing. What are some of the mistakes, what are the major mistakes that companies make? Well, I, I think we talked about one is that, you know, they operate without a marketing plan. Um, yeah. I yeah, think that's a big one. Yeah. Um, secondly, I, I think, um, you know, the, they work in silos. You know, there's. Yep. It, it goes back to something you said earlier about the way the Australian Australians function. You know, there there are secrets, and you're not willing to share information. And there's no transparency. Um, so I think that that's one of the mistakes that companies make. I also think that. Sometimes companies are not as proactive as they could be in anticipating marketplace changes and marketplace right. needs. Um, so I, I think that's another area where they, they make mistakes. So I'm a, a young person and I'm starting up my own business and I'm selling B to B. What advice? What are the most important advice you can give me? Well, number one, do your research. Make sure that you can identify a marketplace need. Uh, you know, you don't want to go off on a, a, a tangent or an idea that doesn't have practical application. Uh, run, run the numbers. You know, say, you know, the what ifs. You know, if I develop this product, it's going to cost me this much, how much do I need to sell to recoup my investment, what will the profit margin be? So I'd say, you know, do your research, run the numbers. Um, Secondly, find a mentor or a coach, especially if you're young uh, and you don't have a lot of business experience. and with a mentor or a coach, I'm sure they will help you find the 
the right types of training and education and information that you need to develop and acquire in order to be successful. Um, so c- continuing education. I had a sales training client uh, that once said uh, the sign of a true professional is that they never stop learning. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I do too. Um, so and and network. Um, and of course, you know, we talked about having a plan. So I think that that's important too. Okay. Jerry, we're out of time, but thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, you can reach Jerry and her team at tradepressservices.com. That's trade, T R A D E, press, P R E W S, or S S services s-e-r-v-i-c-e-s dot com and I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard radio show on Voice America Business after this short break from the boardroom to you Voice America Business Network You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. Coming to you on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting today across the world from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment in just a couple of hours. I'm off to the airport to catch a long, long flight to Australia. So I'm not really looking for that. Looking forward to that. Now, if you get anything out of this show today, there's two things you should take away. Um, Some of the great advice that Jerry Nylons gave you, a very smart lady. And secondly, buy... CRISPR Therapeutics. You certainly will not regret it. That's C-R-I-S-P-R Therapeutics. It is a mega winner. Now, in 2019, there are a number of IPOs scheduled, and these IPOs are going to release more than $100 billion in found money. So who gets to share this fortune? Employees at Pinterest which had its initial public offering last week, are each reported to have an average of $700,000 in company stock. Now, Pinterest is an image sharing site and it has 1,800 employees. So after its IPO, it closed at $2440, which was up 28% from its $19 listing price, taking most of their staff to millionaires. Now, while a million bucks each is a lot of money, the average equity held by Printerist employees is much less than was the case with Snap employees when they went public in 2017. So what happens is with these IPOs, it's not only the big guys that get big, but the employees benefit enormously. Zoom, a cloud-based video conferencing company, also IPO'd last week. They have 1,700 staff. 
and they closed their first day of trading at $62, 72% up on its listing price. And that creates a whole truckload more staff millionaires. So can you remember back when um, Facebook went public in 2012? At that time, about 12,000 people became millionaires thanks to their new stock wealth. So, of course, when most of the staff become millionaires, your next problem is trying to keep them working for you. And I'm sure many of them will be inclined to maybe travel or start up their own company, but at least the staff benefit. Now, this time around, just six IPOs, Uber, Lyft, Palantir, Airbnb, Slack, Pinterest and Postmates will produce a potential $230 billion market windfall and will create about 6,000 new millionaires. So this will unleash billions of liquid dollars into the market and make 2019 a year of incredible wealth creation. Early employees might plonk it down, 20 million to buy a, <coughs> excuse me, a new home. And when they do, they drive up the prices of all the homeowners in the area, creating a bunch more wealth. Or a startup co-founder might set up a charitable foundation that also makes difference to the lives of a whole bunch of people. Now, if you don't have shares in any of these IPOs, do what I tell you. Go and buy CRISPR Therapeutics, C-R-I-S-P-R, Therapeutics. You can become that millionaire without getting into an IPO. The decisions that the rich make in 2019 is going to shape the real estate philanthropy and startup will now for years to come. You know, you get 6,000 new millionaires. Wow. And the, and the people making money from IPOs are typically, typically fall into one of three categories. They're either venture capitalists, they're founders who can't sell too early because it looks like a vote of no confidence in the company, and employees who usually have to hold on to their stock for six months. But most of the money pours into housing and uh, there's a knock-on effect. And upgrading their home is the first thing that Silicon Valley people do and they go and buy a second house in Tahoe. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Any bastard can be ordinary. And if you're always trying to be normal, you'll always be boring. You'll never know just how amazing that you can be. So I hope you can enjoy, <laughs> hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I'll be broadcasting across the world from our studios on the shore of Sydney Harbour in Australia. In the meanwhile, have a great week and continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.